1: Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth wherever you get your podcasts. Or for more information, go to johnwarrenmedia.com where you can link to all of our episodes and learn more about us and our work. Our sponsor is CFS Financial. CFS Financial is a full-service commercial consulting firm. We consult on matters involving debt, and all matters financial and governance-related. We assist with financing new projects, refinancing old ones, negotiating with financial institutions, and the like. We also get involved in strategic planning and other elements of financial planning for companies. We don't do. We are not an investment firm, an investment advisory firm, and we don't do personal financial Consulting at all. We focus uh, primarily on Christian schools, churches, parachurch ministries, and other for profit companies. That's CFS Financial. For more information, go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. There's a separate tab where you can find more about CFS Financial. Also, please contact us. I am going to try to put together this conversation, this episode, based on your feedback on the episodes that have just been released over the past few weeks on the economy. I had no idea that we were going to evoke such a response from just a discussion about the economy, some very practical information, and some a a bit more higher level, broader. And so today, I'm just going to rant. A little bit, and I really don't know what to expect here. I have just a few, a few things I want to talk about, and I sometimes my my students are precious. Uh, I have to tell you, they are probably shouldn't say precious about eleventh and twelfth graders, but they are, and I mean they're the absolute best in several respects, and I'll I'll tell you about a couple of those. One, they actually care and they're kind, and they would give you if you could meet them they'd give you confidence in in future generations. I know I said that in, in some of the episodes where I had conversations with some of these students, but I actually really mean it. And that as a group, you would feel this way if you could come to my classes and meet these amazing Circle Christian School students. It's it just difficult almost for me to talk about without becoming emotional because they will also tell me the truth. And they have encouraged me on more than one occasion to, and I quote, let it rip. And what they mean is they actually don't like it. When we start qualifying everything and being careful with our words and trying not to offend and walking down the middle on issues, they want to hear the truth. They know at this stage, by the time they get to this age and they're all in, you know, the 16, 17, 18 year old category, they know that there is this thing called truth, absolute truth. They, I don't, I don't need to do a podcast for them called Relentless Truth because they already know this, and they encourage me to let it rip, meaning just tell the truth. Don't you don't have to qualify it? Tell us the facts. We can handle the facts on on most any any subject, and we talk about big ideas, some really important things in in all of my classes, whether the discipline is ethics or worldview or government us government or the economy but i'll tell you the reason i say all of that and the first topic i want to talk about today so this is going to be these aren't random topics they're they are somewhat related but they're not all directly related so so this is my first uh, you know here we are after a half year of doing podcast episodes and this is my first one where i'm gonna let it rip and i'm gonna rant just a little bit. And I hope I do so in a helpful way, but I'll tell you what I'm sick of right now. I'm just going to throw this out there. I am like you probably sick and tired of manipulation by politicians. Now that means a lot of things. They get interpreted by the press. So the press is at fault and yes, the liberal press is really at fault But even more conservative outlets are at fault from time to time in this regard. They become sort of message carriers for the politicians. And and they sometimes uh, these news outlets talk about whatever sells and they take a position and sometimes don't even seem to me to really understand the, the underlying issue. There's a lot of water carrying for politicians that goes on, but, but let me talk about the manipulation by our politicians. And when I, when I say that I'm thinking of Congress, I'm thinking of the house and the Senate, the U S house and Senate. Now this also applies to politicians at at various levels. I happen to know some really good people who have served in the U S house and, and in other political roles other elected offices at, at various levels. And so this isn't a blanket accusation uh, that applies to every single person who has served. I, I would give grace to several people who have gone to Washington and tried hard to do the right thing. But here's what happens. The average person runs for office for the first time, and you can think of many of them as I say this, because they're, they're, most of them are well-known by most people in the U.S., some conservative, some liberal, but they go to D.C. attempting to, with the notion of the idea of the, their motivation being to change the world, and then they start to fade, and they start to slip from their position, and they start to qualify what they say, and their positions are just a little more murky. And I have to ask myself, what in the world just happened and sometimes it's not so clear because sometimes the rhetoric that we hear in the media and the person's voting record if they're in a position where they vote so this doesn't apply to maybe people who are appointed cabinet members and and the like but it does apply to all of congress to be certain and we hear the rhetoric and then look at their voting record and those those things don't line up and and there there are some common themes And this is by no means because it's a rant. This is not a a comprehensive conversation about all the common themes that we see, all the problems, all the political issues. But, you know, since we're spending trillions of dollars, let's say it this way, and stealing from future generations, I think this notion, this what happens to them when they're elected and go to serve in the Congress, the House and the Senate in D.C. is an important topic. Now, it starts with, I think, one of our challenges is these people are elected and they instantly become part of a fundraising network. There's not this sense of purity and independence. There is a, hey, we're part of a club, we're part of a party. And even independent members, and there aren't many, only like a couple of senators and a few members of the House. Who are independent members, meaning they they don't identify as Republicans or, or Democrats. They don't go through the primary process, but they're independent members, and they and yet they caucus with the parties. So they still gather with the parties, and they and they still kind of vote, uh, usually, although this isn't hasn't always been historically true, down party lines. Now, an item that that I find really irritating is they go to D.C. And they immediately start fundraising. They, they start dialing for dollars. Each party has rented a building. And you're probably familiar with this already. I think I've mentioned it before on Relentless Truth on an early episode. But they have cubicles and phones, phone banks. And they go and spend hours each week dialing for dollars. You can't do that from the Capitol. You can't. It's actually illegal to call and solicit donations from the U.S. Capitol. Now, I don't know whether they stretch that and make some calls from their offices in the Capitol. I don't know whether there are some sections of the Capitol that are sort of private and where they're able to do. But I do know that each party has both the Republican Party and the Democrat Party have office space leased the next door down the street. Where where they do fundraising, where members of the Congress go and dial do what they call dialing four dollars, so that sort of focus early on day one or two for Congress concerns me. Then there's this notion of and we all do this. You've heard it referenced as the blank economy. Fill in the president's name: the the George Bush economy, the Barack Obama. Economy, The Donald Trump economy and now the Joe Biden economy. And that troubles me because I, I understand the role that the federal government plays. Uh, and, and if you've been with me, you've gotten an overview uh, a few episodes back. We did three episodes on the U.S. Constitution. And so if you miss that or you, uh, go back and listen to it, if you would, if you don't find that deep enough and valuable, read the document itself. Not what other people say it says, but read the U.S. Constitution yourself. And you'll see in Article 1, particularly in Section 8, you'll see the enumerated powers of Congress. You'll see this is what the U.S. government is supposed to do. This is what the Congress is supposed to do. And I understand that through fiscal policy and some monetary policy, the administration can influence the economy. And, and I, I hear it when people say this economy is Joe Biden's fault. Look at the inflation. And when they say that, they mean look at the rising prices, even though inflation is devaluation of the currency. They, they say, look at inflation. Look at gas prices. This is Biden's fault. Or, or look at the stock market. This is Trump caused this. You know, I heard this many times early in the Trump administration. Look at this wonderful stock market. The market loves the Trump administration. And, and you can go back to the Obama administration, you can go back to, to George But you go through all the, uh, the presidents uh, for, for many, many years, at least during this modern era, say for the last, oh, 50 or 60 years, and, you, and you've heard the press blame or credit the president, you know, the present administration with whatever's going on in the economy. Now, again, there are policies, there's even the bully pulpit, you know what that is, that really is the president's right, it's the power the president has, the, if the president says or does something, you know, it influences our lives and can influence the economy, but the economy cycles, and it cycles normally, and you've heard me talk about it recently, it looks like waves in the ocean if we measured economic output, whether it's GDP or whatever you want to use to measure economic output. And so it gently and sometimes it's not so gentle, but but we have we have these troughs and these peaks and then we have expansion and contraction. And you know how that works. You've you've been through if you're if you're over 30 years old, you've been through a couple of economic cycles and and for some of us we've been through a number of them. And so you know you know how that works, but to suggest that the president is responsible for those cycles is incredibly naive. So here's what happens. Our politicians are afraid. They go into office often thinking, and I know everyone listening to me understands all this already, but I'm just ranting. Our politicians go into office, and on day one, they're concerned about getting reelected, particularly if they're a member of the House, because they've got to run for election in two years. And now the election cycle is so long that they don't even get settled into their chair. They haven't even worn their chair to the point where it's comfortable for them. And they're already thinking about reelection. They use this thing called franking privilege, where they can use U.S. government dollars to promote themselves. They can't cross certain lines. They can't say, vote for me. But they can say, look at what I've done. That is so wonderful. So they're thinking about reelection right away. And they believe that they owe it to us to defend the honor of their party. And they let party focus Trump or win out over doing the right thing for the economy. And this makes them, uh, we're just talking about the economy right at the moment, but this can make the Congress sort of myopic, sort of short-sighted, sort of and not having a long view of the implications of their decisions. And I'll give you a, an example of that. If you take the three branches, you take the executive branch and the legislative branch in particular, and when one party has control over those two, so, so you have a majority in the Congress and you have the White House, you have the executive branch, the administration. What can happen and what we what we have happening today is that the political party, in power, believes that its future, its future elections, its credibility are all at stake and that the American people will, they believe that the American people, starting with the media, will judge them based on the way the economy goes. And so the media goes out and reinforces that and calls it the Biden economy. Whether the media is favorable, whether they lean left or lean right, they call it the Biden economy. And so what happens is Congress makes, and and the administration does plenty of this, makes short-term decisions. Even the Federal Reserve gets involved, which is supposed to have some independence, and they make decisions that are designed to avoid tagging the president, in this case, with a bad economy, with bad economic outcomes. And so, so what happens is, I'll give you a perfect example that we've talked about before. All of this stimulus funding, all of the funding around COVID-19 totals in excess of $4 trillion. And all of that is going right to our national debt. And that's problematic. Whether you think some of it was necessary or not, if you look at it in totality, and, and again, I'm just ranting at the moment. I'm not going to read all the statistics to you, but if you look at where the money went, how it was used, even anecdotally, if you look at the fact that if you look at, let's just talk about the PPP program for just a minute, the payroll protection program. You look, at, look at that funding, two and a half months of salary, lots of companies received, some needed it. Some were able to sustain their workforce and so on, but others absolutely didn't need it. And as long as the companies complied with a couple of rules and didn't see a decline in the workforce by a certain percentage and filled out all the right paperwork, those loans, those PPP loans, two and a half times the total payroll ended up being grants being turned into grants by the federal government to for-profit and nonprofit companies throughout the US. Now, are some of those companies very important and was this much needed relief for some of those companies? Yes. However, we didn't do any kind of means test really. We just said, "Here you go." And then, and then we made a way to turn it into a grant that involved just saying, "Okay, we didn't here's our payroll before, here's our payroll after the observation period, and as long as you didn't fire uh, more than a few people, a, a certain percentage of your workforce, it turned into a grant for everyone without regard to how much cash did you have before COVID? Uh, how much money did you make during COVID? Is your business resilient or is it is it victimized in a in a shutdown? And you've heard some of the stories. I'm not going to bore you with stories about particular companies, but suffice it to say that the government got involved, both the administration and Congress got involved an approved stimulus. And, and the same thing happened with individuals. You know that a lot of people got checks. My wife and I received checks that we didn't ask for, we didn't need, and we received them because we met just basic income criteria. I, I don't know, I don't remember what the cutoff was, but if you make less than two hundred fifty dollars or $300,000 a year or whatever the number was, they sent a check a couple of times. And I know that that is, it sounds like I'm opposed to helping people who are in need when I say this, but I'm not, I'm in favor of helping those in need. I'm just not in favor of this blind political act. And that's exactly what it was. And I know that's what it was. And you know, that's what it was uh, that is designed to buy votes in the future by just giving money away, printing money and giving it away. Now that doesn't even... Cover that doesn't even begin to address that, doesn't even overlap with the Federal Reserve and this roughly $120 billion a month that they've been printing during this COVID period for the last, I don't know, 20 months or so. So they've been buying back bonds, they've been pumping money also into the economy during this period. Now, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what both of these things do. And I, I know it's arguments against everything I'm saying are, are nuanced and the argument for my position is more nuanced than, than I'm discussing today. So I, I get all that. Feel free to go to johnwarrenmedia.com and comment, uh, reply, send a, an email to john at john Warren Media if you'd like. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But I do understand that in a podcast episode, I'm not making the most nuanced, eloquent argument. But I'm right about the fact, the big picture fact, that what is happening is we are stealing our government is stealing from future generations by raising our national debt to 30 trillion dollars to accomplish these things and then increasing our money in circulation our money supply if you will through the federal reserve creating a devaluation of the currency which raises prices and so we're making The standard of living in the U.S. for the future lower, although most people appear to be coping pretty well right now. Wholesale prices, we just heard a report that went up by 10% last month. And so we're seeing rising prices and we'll see more rising prices in the future. As we go into this new year, you're going to see consistently rising prices to reflect the outcome of this money printing. And then we're stealing from future generations because they're saddled with all of this debt. And we're apparently not done. We're apparently going to spend more. There, there, there's more that is being proposed that will, sometimes it's called an additional, a secondary infrastructure bill. Other times they reference it as more stimulus. Congress, because they want to get reelected, they don't want to see economic numbers, economic data lagging indicators in particular or leading indicators for that matter, but lagging indicators, economic indicators in particular, they don't want to see them decline because they want to get reelected. They want, even if they're not running for reelection, they want their party to do well because we've turned into this narrow minded self aggrandizing political cesspool That says that the American people have, we've, we've just looked the other way and said, yeah, sure. You can, in fact, here's what we were saying by our actions. You can do whatever you want to artificially stimulate the economy, regardless of the long-term consequences, regardless of the impact on future generations. We're happy for you to do that. And then we'll give you credit for that at the ballot box. Why in the world can't we see through this? And why in the world are we not holding Congress and the administration accountable? It's easy to do for the House of Representatives. They run for election every two years. And why in the world don't we stop this party allegiance? And I know there are some issues. I know as I say that, some of you are thinking, well, I could never vote for a Democrat because of the abortion issue. And I get that. I'm not suggesting that you go vote against your conscience. But here's what I'm saying. From a big picture standpoint, if we let both parties continue to bankrupt our country, by spending future generations money and racking up debt that frankly would be very difficult to ever repay. In fact, we're not even solving the budget. We're not even balancing the budget. We're not even budgeting to break even each year. We're budgeting this year to lose 2 trillion dollars to go backwards to have deficit spending. We call it to make it sound better. Doesn't doesn't it sound good to say deficit spending instead of just losing 2 trillion dollars cuz that's what we're doing we're we're taking in 2 trillion less than we're spending and it's just irresponsible it's designed to gain favor from the the shallow electorate that i'm a part of that that votes based on all these other factors and doesn't hold congress accountable it absolutely should make us all sick now there's a bigger problem though and that is This activity, this manipulation, if you notice, it comes home to roost. These policies that say, oh, well, we'll just print money or we'll continue to spend or we'll dole out all of this. We don't want the economy, the economic indicators to go down because this is the Biden economy and he's going to be held accountable for the Biden economy. Remember the the years ago in an election, I think it was George Bush said something I can't remember who he's even running against. It was the first George Bush, George H.W. Bush, who said it's the economy, stupid. I believe it was him. It might have been Reagan even. But it's the the notion that the pocketbook issues matter most to the American people. Well, yes, they do. But we have got to care for the long-term implications of these decisions. There's more to the economy than just spending, than just consumer spending, than just the Dow Jones industrial average or, or some other indices. So it seems to me that we've just lost our way morally. We, we aren't connecting the dots and, you know, I know some of you are going to be angry at me for saying this, but Donald Trump was one of the biggest offenders at this. He talked about the stock market as if he made it happen and he didn't make it happen. Not, he might've moved it 1% one day. The stock market actually reflects the expectations of the investor on the future. It's really each stock for each company is really based on the net present value of their ability to generate cash flow into the future, and that's without doing calculus. You know, it, it's it's really that simple. It's just moving future cash flow, future money at future points over a series of years. In fact. We can even look out indefinitely and do a simple calculation at a discount rate to bring all that money back to today and say, here's what that company is, worth." That's what determines the value of companies in the stock market. And then they all go together to form the actual value of the index. And then we get all worked up. We, the administration takes a bow whenever the stock market is doing well and, and they sort of run and hide when it's not doing well. Does government influence policies and and otherwise move the needle in the stock market to some degree, maybe creates an environment, uses that bully pulpit I mentioned earlier? Sure. Yes, they do. But, but the stock market cycles and it's based on the performance of our businesses. Now, some of you are thinking, now, wait a minute, you got to get into tax policy when you talk about this because we want less taxes and when we have less taxes and we talk about taxes the right way businesses seem to do better and that's true i'm not discounting the fact that government does influence the economy it does in capitalism government's important the regulations they they put in place are important but what i'm saying is that we give government too much credit we give the executive branch too much credit this is not the Biden economy. This is the U.S. economy. And Congress, Congress does some things. And when they, when they do the things we've talked about already in this episode, to stimulate, be careful, watch for that language, to stimulate the economy. They provide stimulus or relief packages, which they've done during this COVID period. And again, some of it is necessary. Don't be offended with me. I understand some of it's necessary. But when they stimulate the economy to avoid negative outcomes, negative indicators, negative indices, when they stimulate it with that in mind for their own political ends or their political parties ends without regard for the quality of our economy and for future generations, they are morally bankrupt. They morally have left the path. They are in the ditch morally and they're now in this self-serve, and it it sickens me to see, I'm going to give you another example. If you really go to DC and meet some people and you learn that, and there are some exceptions to this, but no one ever really retires from Congress. They go from Congress to a law firm or as, as a lobbyist or to a think tank, but most of them, most retired Congress people become lobbyists. And that's just how it works. There's this incestuous thing that goes on there. In fact, I'll tell you the best example of of this. It would be a fun read for you. Look at Goldman Sachs and the Department of Treasury. Look at the number of people. You don't have to go far. (laughs) Steve Mnuchin comes to mind. But look at the number of people, Not, not just from Goldman Sachs, but they are particularly interesting to me in that a number of people in the Treasury in the administration, in various financial cabinet, non-cabinet, executive branch, and non-executive branch roles in government. A number of key leaders in our government in terms of, of the financial aspects of our government have come from Goldman Sachs. And they, I understand that there are laws in place to avoid direct conflicts of interest, but there's this collegial there's this unhealthy. Now, sometimes you can make an argument that, wait wait a minute, maybe Goldman just hires really good people. Yes. And part of that is they they hire people with Ivy League educations. And maybe these are the, they would call it the cream of the crop. Maybe these are, are, are the best available people for these roles. Well, there's a pattern there. And I, I know I sound so alt-right when I talk like this, but there's a pattern there that is unhealthy. There's a pattern there that makes the federal reserve and the U S treasury way too cozy with wall street. And I'm all about freedom. I love capitalism, but these, these relationships where um, government is populated with executives from the very industry that they now regulate great care. Let's just say it this way. Great care needs to be given to make sure that relationships are arm's length, that conflicts of interest are disclosed and avoided and are rigorously prosecuted when violated. And we don't do any of those things. So I I know we sometimes do, but we don't as a matter of practice, we don't do those things well. So this economic manipulation by politicians, what it does long-term is it makes the trough deeper. And I know I did an episode on the economy about this. I'm not going to repeat it, but the government Appearing to, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt, with some people genuinely wanting to solve the problem, they they can deepen the trough. I believe this happened in 2008 and 2009 and in the, in the following years, where I believe that would have been a correction, a difficult, harsh correction. And I'm sympathetic to all of you who lost jobs, lost houses, had to move, had to had to change parts of your lifestyle, maybe even quality of life. I I get all of that. I'm sympathetic to all of that, but government in, in remember cash for clunkers where they, they want to bail out the auto industry or the direct bailout of the auto auto industry. Thank God for Ford motor company. They didn't take any aid, but the others did. They had TARP for banks, trouble asset relief program for banks. Uh, Our banks didn't take any of that relief, but most did. So there's, there were all these programs with perhaps good intentions and there was quantitative easing that happened. You you remember that we learned that concept where the fed was printing money back then, all designed to stimulate the economy, even bailed out insurance companies and forced some mergers in the financial services industry. Government intended to do well. And I know some of these bureaucrats who, who work in the banking uh, regulation sector, who were part of the Troubled Asset Relief Program, who were part of this going and closing banks that were failing and conducting the auctions. There are some good people who are smart, who really tried hard to do the right thing. My problem is not with them. It's with the Congress and the administration, who really are looking at this as a matter of political necessity. They dive in, thinking history doesn't repeat itself, thinking the Roaring Twenties, didn't happen thinking these other periods where we've had these corrections didn't really happen. We need to go do something or the world's going to end. And what ends up happening is they make the trough, the downturn, the decline deeper and longer. It would have recovered naturally because the beauty of this capitalist system that we enjoy is that opportunists come in, investors come in. And when they sense that we're at the bottom they begin to come in, you can call them predators or whatever you'd like to call them, but they they come in and make things happen, and next thing you know, the economy is turning around and we're, we're experiencing a recovery. So that's the rant on on politicians and the economy. I'm not suggesting that we're prepared to just take government's hand off of the economy altogether. That would be naive. I'm something of a libertarian, but not a pure libertarian. I am just sick of politicians in both parties who think that they've got to jump in and fix this because their party is in power and they want to look good and they do so with no regard to what they're really doing to our country, which is quite frankly, putting it in financial jeopardy. You don't have to go back very far. It's really interesting. I bet I bet you didn't know this. In 2008, I think I've mentioned this before. This is probably old news, but in 2008, right as we're having this last downturn, we had 10 trillion in debt. Today, just 13 years later, we have about 30 trillion in debt. We've tripled the national debt during this period. And most of that came from this reaction to to, to the economic downturn, the the Great Recession, as it's called, of 2008-9 and, and following, and our reaction to COVID. So that's that topic. I want to talk about one more thing today that is really bugging me, and I'm not going to cover this very well, but it's cryptocurrency. And I have lots of students who, and by lots, I mean probably 20 or so, who over the last couple of years have made it clear to me that they are... They're in this business of buying and selling or investing in or holding or have been gifted or whatever cryptocurrency now, if you don't know what that is, I can try to explain it. I won't do a great job of explaining it, but i'm I'll kind of hit the highlights it it's really it's really a secure system it's a currency that has been developed that the idea is it's worldwide it doesn't rely on government's financial system to keep it secure and there's this whole blockchain security that is used cryptography that is used and it's a form of investing that it is called a currency but it's really a a speculative investment that really relies on uh, and this is a harsh term but it relies on a greater fool coming along is what we call it in banking it relies on if you're going to trade it in the short term and you're not using it for purchasing and you consider it an investment, which I think is true of most people who invest in cryptocurrency, then you're relying on somebody else coming along at some point in the future who thinks that it's more valuable than you do. It's a form of liquidity. It is always expressed. So, you, you know, you buy cryptocurrency with other currencies. That's what is interesting about this. and And the best one for purchasing crypto is the U.S. dollar the most sturdy currency over the years in the world has been the U S dollar. And I know the U S dollar gets some criticism and we have this fear that China is going to overtake us and all of that economically. But, but today you, we express the value of cryptocurrency in, in terms of the U S dollar. Now, where does cryptocurrency get its value? It gets its value because people say it has its value. And so there's, there's buying and selling of it and prices go up and prices go down and we can assign whatever reasons we we want to, but it it boils down to supply, demand, and price. And so speculators, when they buy it all up or there's some world event or somebody sells off a bunch of cryptocurrency of a certain type, Bitcoin being the, the kind of the original one and still the largest, then we express the decline in terms of the US dollar or the appreciation in terms of the value of the currency relative to or in US dollars. So liquidity is really interesting. It's an, it's an interesting topic. There's so much to talk about in terms of investing. And again, I'm not in a licensed investment officer. Don't rely on anything. I tell you in this rant to craft your, your own personal investment plan. But I will say this, usually the more liquid an investment, the lower yielding that it is so that, you know, if you have a money market account, you make a lower interest rate over time. This isn't always true, but than, than you would if you tied your money up in a longer-term treasury bond or CD at your bank. So liquidity is an issue, and and risk and return are are issues. Your your expectation, if you do invest in cryptocurrency, your expectation would be wild returns, like like some people have talked about in the past, or some people have experienced in the past, because risk is is high. But I don't go too far in my criticism of cryptocurrency because what I want to say is well. It's only valuable because we say it is. Well, that's also true of the U.S. dollar of our currency. I mean, we're not backed by a gold standard or any other particular standard. Our currency has value because it is valuable, because it is valued. I know we've talked before about the diamond water paradox, but it's probably the best paradox, the best way to look at value and the way we value our currency and even the way we value, cryptocurrency diamonds aren't valuable because they're rare they're valuable because and they are somewhat rare but we we are mining more all the time and can mine more and if you want to go buy millions of dollars worth of diamonds if you had millions of dollars you could go find them they're not that rare and so diamonds have tremendous value relative to other gems other stones and yet we value water much much less water is essential for living and and you can make the argument that, well, wait a minute, diamonds don't fall out of the sky like water does. And there's a whole discussion about drinking water and all the rest. But suffice it to say, the diamond water paradox teaches us that if we decide something is valuable like diamonds, even though um, outside of some industrial uses, they don't serve a lot of purposes, then we can make them more valuable than water, which is essential for life. And there there are a host of other comparisons that we could do in this regard, where we just sometimes, and even sometimes for short periods of time, value certain things because we do. And that's true right now of cryptocurrency. I get the value of this blockchain security. I get the value of independence from governments and from the financial services industry. Even though I've been a part of that industry, I believe me, I understand the value of that. But I just don't see it it feels like people are sitting at a craps table in Vegas and making wagers on cryptocurrency. Now I get the fact that I teach economics. And so we talk about the stock market we even do a, a simulation that has proven to be very popular among the students where we take pretend money, synthetic money, a million dollars a student, and we go buy 10 stocks and we track them for 12 weeks. And I understand that there's There's really not a huge difference in that activity and going to Vegas and sitting at a gambling table. But there is some science there and there is real value in these companies. Usually it's based in their talent and their patents and their processes and sometimes their culture and their history, their legacy. Those things are actually valuable, but you know why they're valuable? I'm going to tell you why I've already said it several times. They're valuable because they produce cash flow. You can go rent that space or buy that property where other businesses have failed and try to execute the same plan if you want to, but that's not going to be productive. What is productive is the real ability. And those of you who own your own businesses, you know, this the real ability to consistently and repeatedly adjust to generate cash flow. And again, we take the net present value of all future cash flows well to, to determine value. Well, that doesn't work with cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is only valuable because, and if somebody else comes along who says it's more valuable and I'll pay you more than you paid for it. And, and I know that sounds really unsophisticated for people who are into that. And I, I know we've got, you know, hedge traders and all kinds of investment opportunists out there. And I know you can make money at these things, but I just am leery and I am late to the party always on these things, but I am leery of cryptocurrency for that reason. I'll tell you what else i learned over the years. Whenever you get to the end of the long explanation from an expert on cryptocurrency or some other subject, and you still just can't quite hold your tongue right and understand what they're saying. You, You just, you almost get it, but there's a piece of it that, wait a minute, I still don't understand that like in cryptocurrency, the whole mining thing. And oh my goodness, it just, I know all the steps of the process and I've heard them all, but there's still a piece of it that I just can't get my arms around, don't really understand. Now, maybe that's my age. Maybe I'm just not an out of the box thinker. You might be more sophisticated than I am at this. I get that. that. That is entirely possible. But I'm not investing in it until... I do get that comfort and that makes me miss a lot of parties it makes me late to the party, but I can't get there. And maybe I'll, in a year I'll do an episode and say, boy, was I stupid back in January of 2022? Uh, I've seen the light, but until then, I've got to tell you, I scratch my head and I understand the uh, value and value proposition quite well, actually, but I can't get there when the only end game is having somebody come along who values it more than you, and no, I'm not, I'm not giving stocks a pass. I know there's some of that that also goes on in the stock market, but in the stock market, there's real value, there's real cash flow generated by these companies. So, I hope the rant has been helpful. I really intended just to talk about government and politicians and how. Very simply, they're spending money to improve the appearance of the economy, the the way the indices look, designed to win political favor that inures to their personal benefit next time they run for office or to enhance their party and their party's image. And it sickens me because we let them do it. We turn a blind eye. We aren't nuanced thinkers. We don't hold them accountable we oftentimes think, well, I've got to vote with the conservative party, or I would never vote with that party, or I can't reach my congressman. Uh, they won't listen to me. And I've said those words. I've even, I've even called Rick Scott and Marco Rubio, our two senators in Florida, from my classrooms. And only once, and it was this year, did I receive a phone a callback from a staffer. And I, I actually otherwise have never received a return phone call and Rick Scott's office sent me a form email. Thank you for contacting our office. We'll put you on our mailing list and then, and they torture you with, with other emails, but never address the fact that, Hey, I'm a teacher and I'd like to have the Senator zoom in our classroom. If at all possible, I'll work around your schedule and so on. So there's, there's such a disconnect between the electorate and politicians. Um, And if if by the way, if if uh, Rick Scott or Marco Rubio hear this episode and you do want to come in person to a class or you want to be on this podcast, love to have you. But I don't think you care enough to go to the effort. I really don't. And I don't think our members of the House do as well. I think you're too wrapped up in fundraising and taking big picture positions that inure to your political favor and I'll tell you another reason politicians don't care about people who don't vote and students don't vote yet. Now you know, you'd think they'd be a little, little uh, longer sighted, but they're not. So those are my rants today. Um, I will close with this thought. All of this should make us rest in who God is rest in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, who. Died to conquer sin and death on our behalf on a cruel Roman cross. We can simply put our trust in him by faith. Turn from our sin. Repent. Turn to him. Rely on him. Put our trust in him for our salvation. What a wonderful sense of peace we get when the world's as crazy as it is. And when all these concerns provoke a rant We know that we can rest in Christ. And this works in the U.S. during good times and bad, and it works in all the other countries throughout the world. We are truly blessed by his grace. So rant is over. Thank you for your support. I'm overwhelmed with the support for Relentless Truth. When this started six months ago, I really did this at some students urging and thought, well, maybe I have something that people would be interested in hearing. I certainly hope this ranting episode isn't offensive to anyone. I guess I did let it rip. So I hope this is uh, helpful. But when this started, I, I really didn't know that, that I, it would attract uh, this much attention. Uh, we've had some wonderful guests on. This first half year has been wildly successful relative to my expectations, and that is because of you, so thank you. I hope you'll send a note every now and then. I, I get them and, and they're so encouraging. You'd be surprised. I don't get that many of them, but if you would take the time to go to Apple Music or Spotify and, and do a review or at least a rating, that would be terrific. If you have time to go to johnwarrenmedia.com and send a comment or two on our on our contact form or, or just email me directly at john at john Warren Dot com. We would certainly appreciate it. Thank you again to our sponsor CFS financial for more information. Again, go to our website, john It is good to be with you. Please like share review and subscribe to relentless truth. Next time we're going to turn the page and we're going to talk about some positive subjects relative to uh, current events. I think you'll enjoy until next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.